today we're going to start a new series, and I'm calling this series Going the Right Way in a Wrong Way World. In case you're confused, we're going back now to the book of Matthew. If you remember early in the year, we started out uh, working through the first four chapters of Matthew. We got to the end of chapter four and saw the summary that Matthew gave to the message that Jesus was giving at the time. His summary to the message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then I started that rather long series. I haven't gotten any comments yet, but I know people well enough to know that there's at least one person in here, probably more than that, who would probably think that that was a little bit longer than it really needed to be. A rather long series on the Beatitudes, very familiar passages. Then Easter came, and I went from the Beatitudes and the attitudes that Christians should have and looked at the cause for those attitudes on Easter Sunday, and I talked about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then for the last several times we've been together, I have talked from the book of Romans on what those consequences were for us and how we were able to change in our attitudes from being separated from God to accepted by God, being afraid all the time to secure in God, and having no meaning to having very great significance in God's presence, in God's sight. So now I want to go back to Matthew. We're going to go back to where we left off. And if you remember, we left off at the end of the Beatitudes... And there's kind of a sudden break at the end of verse 12, and it seems like Jesus just jumps into a brand new topic there. And so today I want to call the message that Jesus gave, standing out in a crowd. When I use that phrase, standing out in a crowd, I realize that I am talking to a variety of people. People somewhere on a spectrum from over here maybe saying, I don't care what I have to do. I'm not standing out. I want to fit in. I want to look like everybody else. I want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be weird. And on the other end of the spectrum is all those people who just can't help but be different. Yes, I'm thinking of my daughter. Shelly? Couldn't care less what people think of her. She is her and she's going to be her. And I would say that if she was in the room, just so you know. Okay? She, she is a unique person. She knows it and she doesn't mind showing it. And somewhere in between those extremes, everybody in this room is going to fit. Not only do I know that there is a continuum of differences of opinion about standing out, I also know that that is somewhat age-related. I know from having been a teenager and from watching teenagers now for a few decades that when you're a teenager, you want to stand out. But you want to stand out just like all your friends stand out. There's still that belief that you can be completely unique, completely individual, but still fit in with everybody else. By the time you get to midlife, that has changed a little bit. In your late 30s, early 40s, uh, maybe even into your 50s, whatever you define midlife as, you're basically looking at the world from how do I stand out? Do people recognize my contribution? People want to be recognized for their accomplishments. And when they don't get recognized for their accomplishments, frequently 
they'll leave. It's the le leading cause for quitting jobs in the United States today is not getting adequate recognition from an employer. As you age, though, that changes a little bit again when you get towards retirement age and into early retirement. You start looking back and asking if you ever stood out. Did anybody not notice at all that I was there? I know that I accomplished these things, and I uh, hope people recognize that. But I also know that I did those things, and I hope nobody noticed. And so this concept, this challenge to stand out in 21st century American culture varies a lot in a person's lifespan. But we may not have known that this is primarily a modern Western philosophy, modern Western phenomenon. This really didn't have a lot of bearing on people, this concept of standing out before the Industrial Revolution when the vast majority of people worked on their own farm. They accomplished their, if they were putting food on the table, they were accomplishing the right things. But since the Industrial Revolution and the rise of cities and the change from an agrarian to other types of businesses, people want to stand out more in the Western culture. If you go to the East, in Asia, in China, in Southeast Asia, this is not nearly pronounced because they still have that family connection where they have to fill a role in a family, not in a larger society, more so than here. The point I'm trying to make is that this is unique in some way to us. The first century Jews would have never considered the things we were talking about because in the first century, the common, what we would call working class Jew, didn't want to stand out. They wanted to be obscure. They wanted to fit in. Because if they had to stand out, they might get noticed by some group like the Sadducees. We know a little bit about the Sadducees from reading the book of Acts. And how the Sadducees attacked the apostles for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't believe the resurrection happened. One of the things that we sometimes miss if we read too fast, though, is that the Sadducees were primarily the priests. And they had control of the temple. And if you caught their attention, and especially if you caught it in the wrong way, then you might have some difficulty when you went to temple with your bull or your goat or your bushel of wheat for whatever your offering was. They, were, they would routinely look at someone's offering and say, that's not acceptable to our God. If you want an acceptable offering, you have to buy it on the temple mount. And they set the prices. And if they were opposed to the way you were standing out, those prices might be very high. They weren't the only group, though. Jesus didn't deal with the Sadducees as much as he dealt with the Pharisees. These were the legalists of the day. These were the people who actually thought that they could one-up Moses. And they went through Moses' law and redefined everything so that they could fulfill that law perfectly. They had control of the synagogues. And if they decided that you were standing out and they didn't like the way you stood out, they could put you out of the synagogue, which was basically to excommunicate you. You no longer had religion. And to the Jews, if you didn't have the religion, then you couldn't do business in some of the marketplaces because you weren't respectable enough. And in many ways, it was to be cast out into exile from your own community.
some of us don't realize that there was a, a, another group called the Essenes. Uh, think of John the Baptist. Some people think that he may have been raised with the Essene community. Th these were the, um, the, the separatists of the day. And if you stood out too much in their community, they might accuse you of being contaminated by society. If you don't look enough like the rest of us, then you might be uh, accused of not being pure enough, and then you would have rituals to go through, and all kinds of things that you didn't want to have noticed by other people. And finally, there was ultimately the Romans, who were always looking for people who were gaining influence, and then they would try to use that influence to their own ends or tax that influence for their own um, profit. And if that didn't work, sometimes they would just destroy that influence. So, so you can see from this that there was a lot of reasons for the first century Jew to not stand out. To kind of be that, I'm just going to fit in in the corner and not get noticed and not have the hassle. But when Jesus was giving us the Beatitudes, he ended that statement with, blessed are you when people talk bad about you, and people curse you, and people are mean to you, or people are separate from you. Blessed are you. It's as if he assumes it's going to happen. You're going to stand out, and you're going to have complications from it. And then in the passage that Mike read, Matthew 5 through 13, Jesus seems to change altogether. It seems like there's just a stop and then a brand new topic. And many of your Bibles will have those editorial section heads there that may make us think that this is a brand new topic. But Jesus was a better communicator than that. And he built on what he'd said before. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that sudden change into the way things naturally behave has a purpose. He starts out by saying, you are the salt of the earth. And we in our culture have taken that phrase and turned it into a compliment, haven't we? They're just good, old-fashioned, hard-working, day-to-day people. But that is not what that phrase meant. That is nowhere near what that phrase meant. Um, most of the people Jesus were talking to either were in agriculture to start with, they had their own farms and fields, or they had gardens in their cities where they raised some of their own food. And what they would do is they would try to raise the best crops they could, so they would do what we do. They would use fertilizer. And what was the fertilizer that they used? They didn't have potassium, whatever it is that's made out here at the, at the factory on the edge of town. They used what they scraped up off the barn floor. Manure. And they would mix it with salt. I don't understand the chemistry of it, but they would mix that with salt and it would make better fertilizer. And basically he's saying, when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's basically saying y'all's fertilizer. And if I wasn't a pastor preaching in church, I might be a little more graphic about the way I described what he said you were. So you can imagine how people kind of reacted to that, maybe. Not quite so, you know, like it was a compliment. But he goes on from there. He says, you're the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? That phrase is interpreted primarily in two different ways. 
As I've done the research on this, read a half a dozen commentaries or so, some people seem to think that he's probably talking about something that's not really salt. Okay, when we talk about salt, we talk about sodium chloride. It's the stuff that we put on our hamburgers and on our salads, and it's the stuff that's in the ocean. It's sodium chloride. But in their culture, sodium chloride might not have been as easy to get, and they would get salts out of the Dead Sea. And that would be high in magnesium chloride or potassium chloride, uh, some other types of chlorides that would have a salty, almost salty taste to it. But when it got wet, it would stop being salty. Whereas sodium chloride, anybody who's been to the ocean knows, when you put sodium chloride in salt in water, you get salty water. So see, one, one side of the argument is he's talking about something that we wouldn't really call salt. The other side is that he's talking about something hypothetical. That he is thinking about sodium chloride because he does mention flavor. And sodium chloride is the saltiest salt out there. So he may be talking about sodium chloride, and he's talking about something that we know doesn't go bad. It keeps its salty flavor. But hypothetically, what would happen? We, in the 21st century, need to remember that everything we read has to be read in context. And what he's trying to say is that salt has a natural attitude to it. And if it's really salt... It's going to have that attitude. Um, you may not know this, but uh, it came up in, while I was researching this concept of salt that in the English language, we don't always use the word salty to refer to flavor. Anybody here ever hear of a sailor being referred to as salty? He's been on the ocean for so long that he's got salt water in his veins. And this always describes somebody who's usually just a little bit socially off color. Not somebody you would take to a proper dinner, dinner party, but he's always fun to be around. He's salty. And I think that came down to the English language probably through this passage where Jesus is talking about somebody who doesn't really quite fit in, but you really like having around. I like the commentary that Mike gave when he did the reading this morning on this passage. There's a natural attitude that Jesus is talking about, but he doesn't explain it. Did you notice that? He goes straight on to saying, you are the light of the world. Now, these are the folks that he just insulted by calling something else. Now he's saying, you are the light of the world. And he says, a city on a hill is not easily hidden. To which we go, duh. You know, if you've got a city on a hill, it, evening comes, everybody lights their lamps, it lights up, you can see it up there. I had an experience like that one time. i got to tell this story. I, I love this story. I was just learning to drive. And an older friend who had been driving for a while decided he was going to mess with me. So I drove over to his house and he says, come on, we're going to ride in my car for a while. And the, the sun went down and there was no moon. And we were out in the middle of nowhere in eastern Kansas. And it was the clearest night I can remember ever seeing. You can look up and see the Milky Way just as bright as a day. And he was driving around. And after a few minutes, he finally confessed. He says, I'm going to get you lost. I want you to know how hard it is to find your way around in Kansas. So we drove around. And he would drive up, up roads, turn around and go back, drive down some old mule trail somewhere, and turn around and come back. After about 45 minutes, he just stopped the car. 
And he says, okay, which way to home? And I said, that way. And I'll bet this guy needed a chiropractor after this. His head snapped around so fast and so hard, and his eyes got that big around, and his jaw dropped. And after he got his breath back, he says, how on earth did you know that? I said, dude, I grew up around this part of the world. That great big bright light on the horizon over there, that bright glow, that's Newton, Kansas. That means that not quite so bright, but obvious light on that horizon is Peabody, Kansas. And I know you live in Peabody, so that's the way home. Because a light is always easy to see. And that's why Jesus went on then to say that nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Jesus, at this point, I think, is trying to win his crowd back after telling them about the manure, the salt of the earth type thing. Uh, he's using humor. I think that we're going to see a lot of this in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is kind of the first hint that Jesus was, in some ways, a little bit of a stand-up comedian when it served his purpose. He said, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, and the people in the crowd would have giggled. Because that's idiotic. Nobody would do that. That's ridiculous. For one reason, it was be expensive. You know, they did not light uh, lamps like we think of sometimes. We think, of, or at least when I think of a lamp, I think of a kerosene lamp. My folks always had a half a dozen kerosene lamps filled with kerosene with a wick ready to light when the power went out. That my daughter asked me when the power was out this week where the kerosene was. She wanted to light the kerosene lamp. And I said, no, it's too hot in here already. But in their day, they didn't have kerosene. That didn't come about till the 1800s. They burned olive oil. And they would put olive oil in a small, uh, forgive me for saying this, but it would look almost like an ashtray. I saw a picture of one that had a place for five different wicks. And you would put a wick in there and olive oil would naturally wick up into that wick very easily and it would burn the oil instead of the wick. So the wicks would last a really long time. And when olive oil burns, it doesn't produce a lot of smoke. So the house stays nice and clear. The uh, olive oil itself was not explosive like kerosene would be. Sometimes if you're not careful, kerosene has a fume that will light. But olive oil has no ignitable fumes. You could actually take a match and drop it into a vat of olive oil and the top of the olive oil will burn, but it will not flash. So if you dropped your olive oil lamp, all you would have is a little pool of olive oil that's burning and it doesn't burn real hot. So it's easy to put back out again. So it's a brilliant way to light a first century home. The downside was is it's expensive. It took years to grow an olive tree. It was labor-intensive to pick the olives, and then you had to press the olives. And usually you would have to pay somebody who owned an olive press to press the olives for you. And then once you pressed the olive oil, then you had to separate it. And that was a series of pourings to get the pure olive oil that you could cook with or use for medicine on one side. And on the other side, it would, you'd have this olive oil with all these little floaties in it. And they would sell that for the lamps. And Jesus is, is pointing out something to them that all of them knew. Nobody would be dumb enough to light a lamp so that they have light in their house and then put it under a bushel so the light can't get out. 
One more way I thought of to explain this so that you can understand just how ludicrous this suggestion was. Um, I usually get up what I consider to be pretty early in the morning. I usually get up around 6 o'clock in the morning. And then I leave the house. I drive up here so I have a little bit of time by myself to do my devotions and answer emails and stuff like that before people start calling and I'm walking in, which I appreciate, but I get all these other things done beforehand. Well, what if tomorrow morning I got up at six o'clock in the morning, went down to my pickup, started the engine, got out of the pickup, walked in the house and worked all day in the house instead and didn't go anywhere. Folks, do you realize that gas is almost $2 a gallon? Would you think me wise? for letting my pickup engine run all day long for no purpose? That's how they would have responded to Jesus with, sure, nobody's going to do that. It violates the purpose of the light. Jesus is attracting them to the fact that light has a purpose. And then he goes on to explain that you should let your light shine. Even uses the phrase, I believe, in the same way, let your light shine so that people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I was kind of hoping James would be here today because I think he'd have caught on to this right away. Most of us are aware of the fact that at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus specifically says, whatever you do, don't do it so people can see it. And he goes on to talk about almsgiving and prayer and um, fasting. You're not supposed to do those things so that people can see you do it. But here, in verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, hopefully I'll be able to explain when I get to that point that in chapter 6, Jesus is saying you don't do it to get bragged about by other people or to impress other people. In this case, he's saying you do it so people can see, so that they can see the glory of God. And he's saying that you should have that goal, to glorify God. So as we look at this passage, Jesus has said, get ready. You're going to have some trouble because you're following me. People are going to talk bad about you and all this stuff. You might stand out a little bit, but that should be your natural attitude. And that should be your natural purpose. To glorify God and not worry about glorifying yourself. Or protecting yourself by not being noticed. So I have for you this morning one of my favorite parts of teaching and some of one of your least favorite. I have a little pop quiz. Now don't groan too much. I know that most of you knew it was coming. I put it in the outline in the bulletin. So you, it's not really a pop quiz. It's more like just a quiz, okay? And it's a simple one. I only have one question for you this morning. And no, it's not one question in 42 parts, okay? It's just one question. What does your life communicate about the glory of God. That's a new thought for some of us. What does the way I live my life communicate to other people about the glory of God? The things that I do, does that point people to a God who's glorious? Or is there some other result? 
Just a couple of talking points for you as you talk to yourself about that question. Uh, think about your accuracy. Are you a person who tells the truth? Or are you a person who embellishes the story every once in a while? Or only tells the details that make you shine a little bit? What about relationships? Now here, here I'm thinking new relationships. Are you a person who relishes the idea of meeting a new person? Are, are you that person who doesn't know a stranger? Or are you that person who's, to be honest, a little bit more like me, who would rather get up at six in the morning and spend several hours alone with my books and put off the meeting new people until another time? Now, I'm not saying one is good and one is bad. What I'm asking you to do is to look at it and say, how does that glorify God? Because probably it does. He built you that way. But are you aware of the fact that the way you're living that out either contributes to or detracts from God's glory? Another good example would be responsibility. There is a personality type. Um, Nancy would know it right off the, hand, the top of her head. I think it's called sanguine, where a person uh, just loves to make people happy. And they'll be in a room like this, and somebody will say, I, I think um, maybe we ought to do a, uh, like a special Christmas program this winter. And they'll jump up and say, oh, yeah, that's great. I love that idea. I'll take care of it. And then the next day can't remember what they promised because all they were really were, uh, focusing on was making that person happy. Or are you perhaps maybe a little bit more like me and say, yeah, we could do a special Christmas program and, and I know what I think ought to be in a program and I think I've got friends who would help me do it and I've got some, maybe some financial resources or some liturgical resources that would help us do a special program, but quite frankly, I just don't want to. And again, it's not that one way is right and the other way is wrong. The question I'm asking is, how does the way you live that out glorify God? And maybe what I'm asking is, did you ever even think about it? You see, everything we do either contributes to or takes away from the glory of the God who created us, who sustains us, who redeemed us, who heals us, and who promises an, an exciting future for us. And every thought, every word, and every deed in a believer's life affects God's glory somehow. So as we look at living the right way in a wrong way world, the logical first step it's exactly the one Jesus gave us. If we start down the path with the intention of glorifying God, eventually we will go the right way in a wrong way world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. I thank you for the privilege of studying it. I thank you for the promise that your spirit is using what you've taught me in my life and for the privilege of seeing other people learn new things as well.
Father, for some of us in this room, there's the possibility that we see some things as we look at our life that we don't like. We thank you for your grace. We lean on your promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from any form of unrighteousness. For some of us, we can look at our life and say, I could have done better and I would like to do better in the future. And we thank you for the promise of your Spirit's filling and the power that comes with that to overcome old habits and traditions and opinions that will help us glorify you. And for some of us, Father, we look back and we say, I, I tried, I may have even succeeded, but nobody noticed. Help us to remember that there's nothing that happens on planet Earth that you do not see and that you do not know well. And so we ask you to encourage us as well where that is needed. And all this we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen.